Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Bradley Klein. He is a former political scientist turned veteran golf travel history and architecture journalist. He's written more than 1,500 feature articles on golf course architecture, resort travel, golf course development, golf history, and the media for publications like Golf Week, Golf Digest, Financial Times, The New York Times, and Sports Illustrated. He's published seven books on golf architecture and history, including Discovering Donald Ross, winner of the USGA 2001 International Book Award. In 2015, Klein won the Donald Ross Award for Lifetime Achievement from the American Society of Golf Course Architects. We had a conversation about what it means to lose sports in the age of corona and how we deal with it, among many other things. I give you Bradley Klein. Brad, welcome back to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. You, um, you are a guy that spent his life, part of his life, in political science, and you were a political science writer, academic thinker, turned sports writer, and golf course designer and consultant, which is the natural career path for everybody. I mean, I think that's often happens: political science, right, to golf course design and consulting. You've flown on the Trump planes. You have, you're an interesting guy. Um, you have loads of Trump stories, which we might get back into at some point in this conversation. But you send out a daily email, or, or, some, or no, maybe not daily, but several times a week about what you're thinking about. And I'm, I've since subscribed to your email list uh, a couple of weeks ago. And you wrote something about sports that I found so moving because it was this sort of heartbroken cry in the coronavirus, right? Like, I mean, you, you are somebody that loves sports. You love writing about it. You love playing golf. You love watching sports, being around it, breathing, interpreting it. And, and you're realizing in coronavirus, there's no sports for a while, right? Well, the first thing is I grew up reading. I didn't read Winnie the Pooh and Alice in Wonderland. I read uh, the Lou Burdette story and Mickey Mantle biographies and, um, you know, I listened to uh, every home game of the New York Rangers when it was still six teams back in the NHL. And I sat there with my transistor radio. So, and I, I used to go, when I was in Little League, I would do interviews in the shower explaining the, the you know, the, the fastball that I missed or, or whatever. So, uh, I grew up loving. So you were imagining that you were being interviewed as a little leaguer. Like, how'd you miss that fastball? And you were imagining talking to the press. It was more like a home run I hit, but uh, yeah. So, uh, I grew up doing that kind of stuff. I had fantasies about wanting to be president of the United States, but then I realized since I was Jewish, uh, it wasn't going to happen. But I had fantasies of you know sports, and uh, I played little league. I had a very good arm, and uh, played center field for the uh, Tigers, and we won our little World Series in the town of Rosedale, which is a suburb of New York City in Queens. And as a um, a gift for that team, we went fourteen and one. Um, and I'm proud to say that the one fly ball and assist put out, uh, I made a put out and then threw it to third and caught the guy. Uh, my parents were actually there. It was the only game they saw all year. 
So um, as a reward, this was 1964, we got on a school bus and went to Shea Stadium wow. to, watch, to watch the Mets. And I got Tracy Stallard's autograph. Uh, he had a Thunderbird. And uh, Tracy Stallard was the guy, I think, who gave up the um, 61st home run to Roger Maris. So uh, that was a great thrill. And I didn't Mantle hit 56 home runs that year in 61. I think he hit 58. 58. Okay. Yeah. It, it was a very close, it was kind of Sosa and um, um, what's his name from the uh, Cardinals. The, uh, it was a, it was a home run chase in 61. That was just dramatic. And um, I think Mantle missed the last two weeks of the season with a leg injury. So Maris uh, was free to do it. And he was the guy who was hated because he wasn't the big star. And uh, and wasn't Maris's hair falling out and stuff? I mean, it was a stressful thing. It was it was no fun. Um, and he was MVP that year, as I recall. Uh, two years in a row, he was MVP. He was a great player. He had a great arm. And he happened to, I think the year before, he hit 27 home runs. And then that year, uh, he just kind of caught it. It wasn't steroids, but it was stressful. And the New York the sports writers drove him nuts. And it just, he re- kind of regretted it. And uh, he ended up... Uh, leaving baseball he played for the i think he played for the cardinals for a while then quit uh, or left uh, owned a beer distributorship in fargo north dakota and sort of died in his 50s uh, in a very kind of ignominious existence and very bitter and um it was um you know he it was a bit like um uh, when tom watson lost the um, british open to um stewart sink in a playoff in 2009 and sink's victory was hollow because he beat the hero and right, right, Maris, right. Maris was the same way. So, but those were great days in baseball. Uh, I remember, I probably could still name the entire starting team of the Yankees from '62 uh, with Pepitone, Richardson, Kubek, Cleet Boyer, uh, Tom Trash, who was Rookie of the Year, left field. Um, you had Mantle, Maris, Elston Howard, who was the first black player for the Yankees. Uh, I, I can tell you this: we were so. Was excited. Yogi Berra catcher? Uh, it was his last couple of years. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was, but. Uh, Yogi Berra was, um, what do you call it, rotating. Uh, he would play first base and right field, and Elston Howard was the full-time catcher. By then, you know, Berra's legs were starting to wear out. And um, I think the last year he played, 1963, he only played about 27, 28 games. I, I remember um, we were I, – I grew up in Queens in one of the boroughs, right near Kennedy Airport. But then it was Idlewild. They renamed it after the assassination. And um, we played peewee football. And one of the days was so exciting in the fall because we were playing a team from Great Neck and Whitey Ford's son was on the other team and Whitey Ford was said to be in the crowd. And uh, we were more interested in wow. finding where Whitey Ford was than in actually playing the game. So you wrote this moving kind of essay to your email list when you were, you were kind of lamenting the fact that we're not going to have sports for a while. Uh, you, know, you, you talk about how 23 Clemson football players were tested positive and that we had five of the Phillies, uh, uh, which is my home baseball team, tested positive um, and other, you know, um, so they're shutting down their training camp and four other major league baseball teams are shutting down the camps. It doesn't look good for the PGA. I mean, and you, and you kind of, you say in the piece that it doesn't look good for football. I mean, it, that, that we're probably not going to have, uh, if golf is challenging, you talk about how one of the guys in the PGA tested positive and he, he, he you know, in between testing positive or, or after, before he tested positive, he's walking around. So all these talking to the players and the caddies and all these guys are all going to have to get tested. So you're saying if we can't control it with golf, there's no way we're having football or basketball or any other team sports, right? Well, I was writing, I wrote on Saturday, my website, 
uh, it's a blog um, called coronavirusdiaries.net. I write it twice a week. And um, their thoughts and feelings about what's going on in the politics, culture, sports, everyday life of, you know, and I write about everything from using my chainsaw to chasing the bear out of the pond to um, masks and racism and uh, and, uh, and you even write about writing. You wrote a nice piece, I thought, the other day about writing, just the nature of a writer writing about writing, which was excellent. Yeah, it's, that's the first time I've ever written about writing, uh, what the chore is like and what the job is like. So, you know, every day I sit down and I'm, I have three kinds of assignments I, that I gave myself because um, I'm trying to work and make a living and um, I'm on my own right now. I mean, my wife is teaching, but um, um I, uh, I write this blog twice a week. I write a lot of freelance stories for golf magazines, and I'm going back to my academic roots as well. I'm co-authoring a book with a colleague on democratic theory and citizenship in the age of Trump. So trying to keep busy. So there are a lot of things going on. I spent a lot of time uh, watching ESPN. I've been down there. I've played golf with those guys. I'd spent time with Trump uh, on a consulting uh, relationship through an architect. So I spent time with Ivanka and Jared and Eric, and I actually, uh, I went to, had breakfast with Eric Trump right after the election. Went down to New York, the Trump Tower. I still have their phone numbers and my cell phone. And uh, what is okay? What does Eric eat for breakfast? Is it, is it ostentatious? I mean, is it simple? I mean, it was actually we met at a little uh, restaurant right around the corner, and um, we just sat down and talked for an hour. I mean, I've known him for years, um, and I I play golf with the family. I stayed normal. So he just scrambled eggs, a bagel. What does he get? Uh, it was a full plate. He had a bagel, you know, four years ago, uh, three and a half years ago. He had uh, a kind of a fancy plate of bagels and eggs. And what I found interesting is there was almost nobody in the um, in the restaurants, just the two of us. And then lurking was the secret service. This was December, right after the election, before Trump became president. So it's in the interim stage. And um, there was a secret service guy in the corner somewhere. And then we walked over to um, Trump Tower. And I've been up to the office many, many times. He used to call the house here. I'd put him on speakerphone. My wife would laugh and listen to, to Trump rant and rave. This is 2007, 2008. But later on, when he got elected, we walked over to Trump Tower, and we just walked right through security. When we went up to the 26th floor, and, um, and Trump was upstairs with some kind of stuff going on about who knows if Russians were in his office or the cabinet um, you know, that he was going to name, probably the same people. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then Ivanka comes over and she gives me, and I've known her, she gives me a big hug and I kind of backed away because, you know, there's a lot to back away from. And I was a little nervous uh, because um, I, I, I was hoping they hadn't been reading my tweets back then because I was uh, terrified of what was going to happen. Yeah, because when you met Trump, he was a shtick figure in popular culture, right? Like I'm, CAD, probably not somebody you'd have in your confidences, but largely a, just a weird cultural figure. Now he's the leader of the free world. And I just, I can't imagine what processing that transition of the relationship to him, his golf courses, the connections you've had. That's a whole different thing. Well, I, I knew, I met him. Well, I knew him from years. We had spoken a little bit um because I was running a golf, a national golf course ranking system. They were very concerned that the Trump organization about their golf courses being nationally ranked. I'd get harangued by them all the time. And um, so he was trying to cultivate me. He was doing that with a lot of writers, nothing special there. And uh, we played golf together in 2000 down at Palm Beach, of course. And, um, you know, I, I met him at mar Laga and uh, we went over and played. And then I wrote about him. And uh, I found him a lot of fun to be with because. First of all, it was just all he was doing was golf and real estate back then. Uh, and uh, he was easy to write about because all you did, and I wrote about this, 
all you would do is write down the stupid things he'd say, and you had a story. So he would talk about his golf course in California in Pacific Palisades or um, Palo Verdes, overlooking a little cove. And he was talking about the greatest golf course in the world. Things sucked. It was just kind of everything was benched in, terraced holes. It was really forced, terrible, artificial, horrible. But it had been a uh, been built on the site of an old sewage dump. And there was a golf course there before. The thing collapsed. And um, he got federal money and then private funds, none of, none of his. And he spent $264 million fixing it up. And he puts a plaque up on the first tee announcing that because it spent $264 million, this is the greatest golf course in the world. And it was garbage. And he'd write me these notes in these. I wish I'd saved more of them. I have a few. But um, um, we stayed in touch because he was just trying to play me for the ratings. And I, I couldn't have cared less. I wasn't impressed with him. Um, so uh, he kept haranguing me. And um, I think I told the story last time. But the best one was, and I, I never watched this TV show. I didn't see it. It was just starting then. That the apprentice thing, but you know, you, you knew that phrase. And so one day he's on the phone with me, yelling at me about the, the ratings. His course needs to be higher ranked. He says, "I'll do anything, anything it takes. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll buy ads. I'll take out. Tell me who the the public. He knew the publisher. Uh, tell me how to reach him. I'll take out all these ads. Uh, I'll buy my way in." I said, "Mr. Trump, that we can't have this conversation. You're fired." <laughs> and um, you know, back then it was just kind of stupid, uh, funny things. He'd go around. I went around with him, Doral, spent a lot of time there with him and um, his team. And he had good people and they were smart. And uh, Ivanka impressed me a lot because she, she was into design detail and she knew fabrics and she knew stone and color and texture. And so I was impressed with their uh, commitment to small. I, I hated his aesthetic. I thought it was horrible. It was kind of a parody of, of bad uh, reformed Jew architecture, Jew Jewish architecture in the 60s, kind of like a bar mitzvah barn. That's what they were building. Everyone. I say this because I'm Jewish and I was offended by it because um, uh, he's, um, it was just tasteless, middle-class, horrible garbage. But that was his aesthetic. And so um, uh, it reminded me of that whole culture. You know, Leonard's a great neck, the bar mitzvah barn in, in, in great neck that everybody, I went to all the time. It was like right out of that culture. And um, so- it, And he is a philo-Semite, right? I mean- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ivanka has converted, um, and he surrounded himself, all of his uh, people, many of them were Jews, Orthodox Jews, no less. Um, he always used to say that he wanted uh, little guys with yarmulkes counting his money. That's what he would say. <laughs> I, I feel bad laughing at that. It's but horrible. It's horrible. It is horrible, but it's... But it is the absurdity that. Well, we're laughing. I mean, I don't. I don't want anyone to to, to think that we're, that we're being anti-Semitic here because uh, I have great respect for the Jewish culture and people, and I'm one of them. I got bar mitzvah. I went to Hebrew school. Sandy Koufax was my hero when he set up the, the first game of the World Series in '63. We all love that. Um, um, I've spent a lot of time studying fascism and authoritarianism. I spent a lot of time visiting concentration camps and Dachau and. Uh, Auschwitz and a, an important, powerful legacy and tradition to be respected. And he just, he couldn't have cared less for any of that stuff. No, no, it was all blind to him. He was just about money. It was about ratings. It was about uh, vanity and uh, bluster. And, uh, but it was just golf then. So it was okay in the sense, but then it got nasty when he started building the golf course in Scotland. He started attacking the locals, uh, going after them, trying to drive them off the land he had uh, all sorts of shenanigans with the Aberdeen Town Council um, and his, the way he kind of manipulated tax law to get tax breaks for his construction projects. So I saw that side. I started writing about it, and that got nasty. And then um, 
Finally, I wrote a review. No, he's not doing that. Like, he's got lawyers that are doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, and, gonna... and they're smart people. That's the thing. He surrounds himself with really smart – he did then. Really smart. So two things. The people I've he- heard his law firm had a rule that you had to have two lawyers from the same firm – from his firm with Trump because he lied to his own lawyers. Well, what the version that I heard was that no law firm in New York would meet with his team with a single lawyer. In other okay. words, the law firm that whoever they were meeting in a deposition or a suit or a, a whatever a claim, there always had to be two taking notes because they didn't trust. And he would all the time try to compromise you. He all the time he's throwing me offers. They're throwing me offers about writing for them, doing pieces for their magazine. He offered to consult. I wouldn't do it. I never got a penny from him because uh, I didn't want to be in the position where he could actually kind of corrupt me. And, and what he does with everybody, he did it with Sessions. He did it with uh, Lindsey Graham. He's done it with this whole he, – he surrounds himself with criminals. He's comfortable with them, and that way he has the goods on them, and he can keep them at bay. And uh, that's how he derives his loyalty. Uh, so it's a combination of surrounding himself with smart people who never – ever contradict him. And when I started writing reviews that were less than flattering, because I'm an honest broker with reviews, you know, his golf course in Aberdeen had a lot of strengths and it had some weaknesses. Same thing with Doral and I wrote about him and he hated it because all he saw was the little, most people who read the reviews thought they were uh, pretty kind and pretty positive. He only saw the little tiny negative stuff and just blew up and threatened me and pulled ads out and tried to get me fired. And it got really nasty. I had all these, um, conference calls with his attorneys for a while and threatening notes and everything. And was, that was before the presidential run. It was just on the golf side. So I just sort of walked away from it. I got, uh, I'm, I don't do well with lawsuit threats. Uh, and I've learned, it was very instructive. You learn with bullies, uh, what you have to do, you either confront them on their own terms, but I didn't have enough money to hire lawyers. So I just, sure. walk, you just walk away. You just, you, you can't fight those guys. And that's all he does. He is shameless. He doesn't care. He'll drive, you know, the Roy Cohen mad dog in him is um, relentless. So, you know, I'm not going to win. I'm just a schmucky writer. So I just walked away from that. Doral, though, preceded him, right? Like, he, I mean, Doral's a course with long history, right? What did he do to Doral? He improved it. Um, Doral was a uh, resort built out in the Florida swamps, just northwest um, of downtown, uh, well, I, just west of the airport. And um, it was kind of low-lying. Uh, in its day, it was kind of interesting. It got a little boring for the tour pros. They were trying to jazz it up. And um, it got it was tired in a lot of ways. So he bought it at a discount, fixed it up, did a great job. Uh, he hired one of the best architects in the world, golf course architects, Gail Hans, did a really good job on it and um, made it better. But um, I'll never forget the first time I went down there with him. I met him at uh, Newark Airport at the, um, uh, I think it was Newark. We flew in in a plane with him and um, his big, you know, whatever, I forget what it was now. I've got photos of it with me and him standing there in in the airplane. And um, we flew down there and we get off the plane. There's about 12 of us maybe. And um, there's a motorcade. And I'm thinking, what is there a motorcade for? He's going to go look at a golf course. But the, the traffic cops and motorcycles were lined up on the seven miles from Miami Airport to Doral. They stopped everybody. The lights were shut down. They waved him through. He went, it was amazing because I've made that trip before. It takes 25 minutes, and we took 10 in his limo, showed up, and um, everybody's out there lined up, the whole crew, the whole staff. And he goes around and, uh, you know, he's ordering people and he's 
telling everybody what he wants. And um, the whole way down in the, on the flight, he and Ivanka were sitting there with a designer uh, going over tile patterns and colors for the bathrooms. And uh, I, I was actually impressed with his attention to detail. So I had respect for that part of it. And again, even though I don't agree with his aesthetic, the attentiveness to it was very impressive. I don't think any of that is there anymore. Uh, I think what happened when he, um, you know, he wanted to win and he, he's about winning. So he ran because it was probably going to be good for business. The apprentice show was slowing down. He needed to generate more attention for himself because he'd stop. No, I heard it was like, I mean, Howard Stern's theory is kind of, it was, it was a kind of way to gin up uh, support for a better contract with the apprentice. Like basically I'll, I'll run and I'll get, you know, I'll get free media and then I'll have a better negotiation. Cause I mean, that's where he made a lot of his money, right? Like, Oh yeah. That's it. Was it as the apprentice. It was not as it is yeah. the genius of the Trump organization. It was this a reality TV star. Well, the genius of the Trump organization was to keep him from uh, going completely personally bankrupt because they'd filed several times because his casinos had failed. He had overvalued real estate, overpaid for real estate uh, in New York. And um, they kept him afloat by, putting him on a salary of i think three hundred thousand dollars a month um so they extracted that once they declared bankruptcy and he'd been through several times so you're right i have the timing off uh, he was trying to renegotiate his deal with the apprentice uh, which saved him financially he came out of nowhere and i think it's helpful i was watching the uh the news uh, following the rally last night in tulsa and uh, i watched the whole rally well i i didn't see live uh i, I didn't get to hear his speech uh, but I, I watched CNN and NBC covering excerpts. He had They had him on, and they're commenting the whole time. And as I'm watching, and you're watching that 19,000-seat arena with 6,611 people in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, Pink, the, uh, the, the pop star, had a great line. She said, what are you, nuts? I sold that thing out in seven minutes. It was a great tweet. Uh, well, apparently this K-pop band yeah. on TikTok like, booked a bunch of reservations. Well, to be fair, what they did is they put their in, they put their name in for for free tickets, but right. it was kind of an unlimited number of tickets because it was first come first serve. So they didn't stop anyone from getting a ticket. What they did is they raised the ex, they raised the interest level of the Trump folks um, and created the impression that there were going to be a throng out there that they couldn't just accommodate in the in the Bach Arena, so they would need an overthrow an over overflow crowd they didn't prevent anyone the, re the reason people didn't show up is because they weren't interested they, yeah. the protests were peaceful nobody got stopped and thank god there was no violence on any side so you know we can be grateful for that but the point as i was trying to start with is that watching this thing with the with the arena only one third full i kept thinking this guy's ratings are terrible if this were a tv show it would be canceled and it's it's like the TV show has now run its course. We have a TV star. He had a writing staff. He hasn't changed his writers. Uh, they haven't changed who they're trying to appeal to. He's misjudged completely his audience. He was boring last night because he got waylaid. He got kind of drunk punched by the flat emotion of the crowd. And um, he sounded bored. He sounded rambling. And it, again, it was just like, you know what? This TV show, it's over. So we're going to watch now for five months as the TV show just disappears. So it's interesting to me because you, the piece you sent out recently on your blog yeah. was about what you're willing to give up in the time of Corona. You're willing to give up one of your first loves, sports. And, and you contrast this to Trump, which is telling us not to give up anything, right? Like it's kind of basically 
we want to just, it's going to be fine. We've, we, 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 we were so proactive. More people would have died if we had to done it, but now business as usual. I mean, it's kind of your tone was we're going to have to move into this dark eerie. It, it, it's sort of like an early autumn yeah. creeping into a winter where there's a lot of things we love that we're going to have to give up. Whereas the administration's message seems to be, ah, it's going to be fine. It's all, it's all going to be okay. Just do what you want to do. When you put it like that, it's actually a metaphor for the entire approach that the Trump administration has taken to the promise of the American century and to the whole era of American exceptionalism. In other words, the, the base of support for Trump is primarily people. I mean, you, you have your wealthy business people, you have your extractive industry, coal miners and oil people who don't want any government regulation. But the mass base of support is in pockets that are white pockets that do not want to give up or don't admit that they've already lost things that they have. There's a high correlation between Trump support and regions with high suicide rate, high uh, veteran veteran um, displacement and homelessness, despair, uh, meth labs, that kind of a sad breakdown of American uh, rural culture and a uh, breakdown of the, of the American middle class dream. And what Trump holds out is the promise that that is still valid. And in that sense, his is uh, the way you put it was great. Uh, his 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 shtick about sports is the same, which is don't give up. We want football, and we want football so much, you know. Even if they, we're not going to watch them if they kneel, because that would be disrespectful. But we want football. We want college. We want sports. We want that kind of militarized version of the you know American male macho, and um, it, it flies in the face of science. It flies in, and it's not my choice to me. We're facing this terrible dilemma, and other countries that have promoted widespread mask use, that have promoted social distancing, that have set the tone from the chancellor or the prime minister or the president of the country, whether it's Germany or New Zealand uh, uh, or, or South Korea, they've been very, or Taiwan, they've been extremely effective. Hong Kong has had four deaths. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Four. four. Yeah. Not 44, four. Yeah. Uh, I live in a town of 20,000. We're a suburb of Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, we've had 73 deaths. Now, um, I did some math the other day I, I, in writing a, another story. Um, Connecticut, the state of Connecticut has a death rate three times the national average. And my town is three times Connecticut average. That is, we're nine times worse than the country. And every one of those deaths in my little town is in a nursing home or assisted living. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah. So it's, so it's and, COVID. It's, it's hitting the nursing homes. And, uh, you know, personally, this, this is devastating. My mother is 89. She's in an assisted living facility in Queens. I cannot visit her. It's, it's, it's literally a matter of life and death for me. She's doing as well as one could. She wears a mask. She washes her hands. She's basically isolated in her room. Uh, we're trying to get her Medicaid qualified because she's running out of money so we can get her into another facility. Back in January, I did all these uh, site visits of facilities. I can't go back to look at those. Right. I can't help her. So I'm trying to get the forms filled out and trying to get copies of it, which is a nightmare because I can't go in the – and she can't hear me. Her Brad, how old are you? I'm 66. But here's so my you're, point. So you're approaching a risk level yourself. I mean, sure. well, if you got, if you got the disease, I mean, it would be – you're on the cusp of the of the – I have, I have a, I've had a very serious case of rheumatoid, a form of rheumatoid arthritis. I'm taking this uh, self-injectable medicine called Embril. I take it uh, every week. I've taken it for two and a half years. If I were paying 
out of pocket, it would be $32,000 a year. I, uh, every week, I inject myself with $830 worth of Chinese uh, hamster ovary cells, and that fends off the rheumatoid arthritis. Now, I'm in a category, rheumatoid arthritis is actually a sort of super immune program. So I'm trying, I'm looking for disease to fight. So my system is actually the opposite of someone. Right. You've got a high, you've got an overactive immune system. But I'm vulnerable to it. My wife, who is a. Are you drinking bleach at all? Uh, we drink bleach twice a month when we <laughs> when we siphon it into the into the jar so we can scrub down the grocery. Whether you need it or not, right? That's I mean, right. I mean, that's what Trump was saying when he was saying he like was taking the what was it called the hydro whatever. I, like, I can't pronounce it. Yeah, I, I just like I'm just waiting for him to say I'm drinking bleach. I mean, I and, and waiting for the doctor to have to go up and say, well, this is not the normal bleach that you would drink. It's not Clorox, of course. It's presidential bleach. The president's drinking. Well, uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, I'm in a heightened state of susceptibility. My mother, who's sitting there in that nursing in assisted living. She's physically okay, but I can tell that cognitively she's deteriorating. Yeah. And so that's one of the, the isolation of the elderly is one of the real tra hidden tragedies of this thing. Um, and um, what's very frustrating is that's a reality and we have to deal with it. And so my view is let's be realistic about it. That means that we're, we're, my wife and I are staying home. We haven't seen the grandkids in three months. Uh, we don't have anybody in our house. We don't go shopping. You know, we, uh, we, we're, we're super careful. And I believe in uh, Fauci and I, I believe in science and I believe in masks and social distancing. And so when I see with sports to get to, you know, in the sports world, you're asking young people who are, who think they're invulnerable. Uh, they're in direct physical contact with each other. That's the whole point of a locker room. They're heaping on each other in football and hockey uh, and basketball uh, in baseball. They're in lockers, they're on buses. They're, you know, you're, that's a, a formula for uh, spreading in a small environment. So I wrote a piece on Saturday and posted it on my, on my blog. And it was, it was about what happened the day before on Friday, the 19th of June, 23 uh, varsity uh, football players from Clemson university were, was announced. They were tested positive. The five Philadelphia e uh, Phillies, four other major league teams shut down their camp uh, and a, a pro golfer on the PGA tour tested positive and uh, withdrew. Everyone he associated with uh, had to had to get tested. The next day, it was announced LSU, the fantastic football team. Thirty players are now wow. in isolation. Uh, they're waiting for the test results, but they have reason to believe. Now, the other thing is that college, and I wrote about this. Colleges are not coming back in any recognizable way. And here's another: you went to college. We all went to college. Most of us went to college. It was the greatest period of our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hanging out with people, uh, whether you lost your virginity for the first—I guess you lose your virginity once—or um, the first. <laughs> if if you don't remember it, you didn't really lose it. You have to remember it. Well, uh, I think the first time it's always forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, back then. Uh, we were doing all sorts of things together, and that was the beauty of it. We were hanging all night bull sessions, staying up writing papers, hanging out, uh, going to the bars, going to concerts, all that. I was uh, and I look at college. I think what happens in adolescence is you're it's the first time when your peer group shape your identity, right? Yeah, like exactly. But then in college, you actually have a chance to get your ideas can shape your peer group. So you, you kick around some ideas in these late night bull sessions, and you. You start to connect with people in different ways. You have this other peer group idea, you know, experience where you can actually try and ideas with each other and stuff. And it's exciting. 
Well, what's great is you get to choose your peer group. And all of a sudden, you're exposed to all of these amazing uh, inputs that are kind of overwhelming. Uh, When I got to college the first weekend, we shut down the campus because the Attica prison riot. Uh, We had Jethro Tull, 4,000 people in the gym for a concert. That was the first weekend. Uh, Wow. We had the Vietnam protests. We shut down the campus later on in the spring. Uh, 200 of us got arrested and went to jail for a day, uh, sitting there in jail. That was part of, you know, your peer group. Um, and I was also, um, you know, I was doing intramural. I was a referee for intramural basketball. So, uh, and I was, uh, what, what else did I do? Uh, I was, a uh, a line in soccer. You know, you're, the, I was a ball, boy. the line judge, the line, no, no, the line. Not, not a judge. I was just a ball boy with the soccer team. So the point is you're doing all these amazing things and you're going to class and you're sitting there all day long and you're sitting there huddled in in, in the cafeteria, which was a buffet lined up there. All that stuff's gone. So you're going to have to rejig classrooms. Uh, Professors who are older than 55 or 60 are going to be very reluctant to go. Right, 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 right. And sit there. Um, And now you got schools that are going to be private colleges are going to be charging 60 and $70,000 a year for the kids to go online education. They could go to, um, you know, Western Governors University or Phoenix University. Yeah, yeah. So that's a big issue that people are not talking about enough. So all these things are going on. Every, every college, every friend of mine that's a college professor, and I have lots of them, we talk about this. They are uh, two things. Like, and I have a lot of friends that are in the professional clergy and a lot of friends that are academics. I have uh, other fields too, but like, but that's the, the two things I notice are, are the colleges, universities and religious institutions. Like, are we going to make it or what's it going to be? Because even as we're opening up, like most religious institutions are uh, are populated with lots of seniors, right? And are they going to want to be in closed, large groups? You know, I mean, it, 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 same thing with colleges. You're saying professors. I mean, these are, and you're saying sports. I mean, this is this is something that drives American passion, but also the American economy. I mean, what's it take out of the American economy when you don't have the NBA, <laughs> the MLB, uh, the NFL, the PGA? And what's this going to do to the American economy? Well, I live uh, right down the road, so to speak, 16 miles from Bristol, Connecticut, which is home to ESPN. And um, I kind of I used to know those guys a little better, but I, you know, I see them here and there. Um, that's you got 5,000 people who all uh, half of them are making probably a quarter million dollars or more, talking, producing, videotaping, online, writing. That's a big. Now you got uh, how many ballparks? 30 major league ball parks uh, in our in Hartford. We have a small little uh, minor league st- stadium hold 6,100. The city has to pay off that note. You got 200 people who sell hot dogs. All those people multiply that out at every level. It's it's a major thing. And here's my point. I don't blame the administration for the outbreak of the uh, coronavirus. That happened. It's one of those crazy things. They could and needed to be more prepared in terms of um, protective equipment. They needed to be more prepared in terms of taking measures when it arose. Uh, and they needed to listen to science about what had to be done early on. And they also need, and this is, they're completely blown this one, long-term detailed planning about what it's going to look like and what it's going to take. And instead, what they did is they wrote a ridiculous subsidy bill that just gave out hundreds of billions of dollars to large industries, as well as some small ones, and not enough. Um, And it's just, there was no planning whatsoever. It was just... um, uh, it's been a disaster. And then to dismiss it as a joke or to politicize wearing a mask, that's the most dangerous thing of all. Because now the most basic 
precaution. If people wear masks, is it perfect? No. But, uh, you know, seatbelts don't stop accidents, but they reduce the lethality of them. So all you're trying to do, it's amazing to me, every time there's a measure for public safety, uh, those who are opposed, usually right-wingers, will say things like, well, you know, you can't stop people from shooting. Well, but you could have fewer guns and you could have yeah, 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 yeah. less yeah. suicide and you could have, if, you know, people are going to kill each other with knives, yeah, but they're going to miss a lot more. And the survival rate, for example, of a knife attack is much higher than, than a gunshot. So all you're trying to do is take percentages where you reduce. If you if, if 80% of the population wore a mask, you'd reduce the infection rate by about 60 or 70%. That's better than what we're doing. So to politicize that and to turn it into either Republicans or Democrats or worse, whether you like Trump or not, the guy is such a pathetic, uh, pathological narcissist that he thinks it's about him. It just poisons the politics and makes science impossible. And it makes just basic, uh, you know, you could argue about the, the scope of intervention and regulation and how much subsidy you could, you, but we can't even have those arguments right now because it's a matter of whether you're wearing a mask or not is a sign of, you know, you're patriotic or not. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. And the yeah, one of the, one of the other podcasts I do, it's called the Atlas project. And I do it with a political scientist from London and his name's Chris Kurtarna. And we had a guy on who wrote a piece of de- about, uh, de- about democracy and the coronavirus. And he's uh, he helps run the Center for the Future of Democracy at Cambridge. And he was saying that basically what we need is more deliberative democracy so that we would – he's like, look, deliberative democracy is not going to get all the expert opinions ratified as policy. But the more inclusive kind of conversations we can have and everybody can sign on to this – the better chance we have of people actually doing things like wearing masks. We can figure out ways to have a conversation and say, okay, we should all try to do this. And we have the opposite of deliberative democracy, right? We just have debates and tribalism. And so it's almost like I don't wear a mask to show that I'm loyal to Trump, or I do wear a mask to show I'm a liberal. Or, and and, and it, it's these kind of these, these practices become reduced to political symbols. It's the, the, the fragmentation or polar is actually it's, Fragmentation wouldn't be so bad. It's polarization. That's really the disaster. What's fascinating, though, is how so much of that has changed with the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, with involvement of a multicultural front to address issues of police brutality. And the statistics and the polling data on that are fascinating because they've changed completely uh, the, the perception of what's at stake here. And uh, I have a lot of hope now for that as a uh, because it's it's making the link between uh, racism, militarism, uh, poverty. Um, it's it's making those links in a way that's very encouraging. And uh, the youth, young people, and you know the symbolic engagement that they had through K-pop and TikTok on the, the sort of uh, uh, punking uh, the Trump uh, rally uh, yesterday is a very good sign of the mobilization, uh, and we need it desperately because we do know that young people who have become eligible to vote tend not to. Uh, the Trump people have to, uh, tried to uh, benefit from that, and they're they're, his, they're trying to benefit historically from uh, favoring uh, old people. But it's an, you know th- what I don't really understand is if your political base is is tending toward an older population, why would you write them off as irrelevant and sacrifice them in the name of economic, you know, recovery? So, and the polls have shown that seniors are turning, turning on Trump because yeah, of this. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's got, it's less to do with Biden. He's not 
the most exciting candidate. But, you know, after the last four years, the last thing I want is an exciting candidate. I want someone who's kind of my, my ideal candidate is someone I don't have to worry about missing something that happened that day. I don't have to watch the news. Exactly. And and by the way, I watch very little news. I, I've turned it off completely. I find it's much more helpful for me to read books and to, to, to look at larger trends and to read thought magazines and so on. But the news is, is a, you know, and Sunday news is the uh, talk shows are the worst because they have the, they, they had Giuliani on this morning commenting on the president's performance at, at the Bach Center yesterday. Why did you have <laughs> – this is the guy who's, who's one – Thread away from uh, arrest now that they've um, hijacked the the, uh, the the attorneys at the Southern District of New York. He may he's, he's, he can skate free for a couple more weeks. So uh, when do you think you're going to get to be a real sports writer again? In the sense of w- when do you hope that we'll? Because this is a thrust of your beautifully written post today about about just having to give up sports for the greater good. I mean, do you, when do you hope that you'll get to? see sporting events in ways that reignite your passions? Um, I don't see anything happening in any substance till at least the spring of 21. Um, um, the, um, that's why I included in that post a photo of um, the Anaheim Angels Stadium uh, filled. It was on a Saturday night. I went there. I love going to ballparks, by the way. And I've been to a lot of them. And I love the... Especially ones that I like. I like, like, you know, I remember I was in Pittsburgh when they blew up Three Rivers and built a football stadium and a baseball park. Like I like a, a football stadium that's for football yeah. and, a ba- and a baseball stadium that's a, a ballpark. You know, that you, you, like that stadium again was another disaster. It's this big, you know, well, utility I, thing. You, you kind of want, you kind of want yeah. something for baseball and something for football. I've actually written a lot on the history of ballparks. And um, I, I like to talk about the institutional suicide that major league baseball committed in the seventies by building these perfectly symmetrical parks in Atlanta, Cincinnati, um, Pittsburgh and, and St. Louis that were multi-purpose and therefore had no identity whatsoever. And um, I, I happened to have been lucky enough. I went to old Forbes Field. I was in Forbes Field in 1968, 69 maybe. And I got to see um, all three generations of that park. And PNC Stadium is, is just the new ballpark that replaced old Three Rivers. Uh, is a fabulous, intimate little right there. In oh, yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. You walk across the bridge. Philadelphia Stadium. Uh Citizens Bank Park is really nice. Um, I like the old ballparks, but I also like the retro ones. And so, um, but the point is that when you go there, it's a special place. It's an intimate, yeah. and it's and it's purpose built for baseball as opposed to purpose built for soccer or football or hockey. And um, that's part of. And when I, one of the reasons I love writing about golf is because I love the diversity of the the playing fields. And as I've said many, many times in print, the beauty of golf, among other things, is the most diverse playing field because it's naturally situated. The only rule about the entire arena, so to speak, is that the hole you're playing to is four and a quarter inches across. Everything else varies. Yeah, yeah. So the variance to me is part of the appeal. And I've always written that way. So I'm not one who sits there and types what they call a, a gamer about you know what home run won the game and decisive pitch or or a quarterback sneaking through the line, whatever, for a touchdown. I never wrote that kind of stuff. I've always written about the context of sports games in a place. So I'll always have something to write about, but it would be nice to just be able to go take the grandkids to a, a minor league park, have a, they have a hot dog, I have a beer, and uh, hang out, just 
you know, make sure we don't get hit by a foul ball. That's great. Um, and I, 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 that's what we'd all like to go back to. Just as we'd all like to go back to the theater and to college campuses. But to do that and to go shopping and to hang out and to, you know, sit in a cafe and, and waste time looking through um, YouTube while you're having the third cup of uh, a vente at Starbucks, um, it's going to take a lot of work. And what above all, what this administration is, is lazy. They don't want to do the kind of work required to get back. And it's a lot of work. It's scary. And this country is not used to that task of mobilizing long-term planning for those kind of reconstruction efforts. But this is a major reconstruction effort. This was a war. Do you think we're just going to flounder and keep getting more infections and more? I mean, like, yeah, yeah, because right now it looks like, I think between just the early opening up, right, the protest movements, all this stuff, like, and this is not critiquing the protest movements. I'm I'm saying like, but, but, but it is kind of, I mean, it is a lot of people in a closed space shouting and the respiratory droplets are everywhere. I mean, like it just strikes me that we're, we're, I mean, I was watching meet the press this morning and this guy they had on was saying, I don't think it's like waves. He's like, I'm thinking about like a forest fire. It's just going to go. I don't it's not, I think the flu is not the right no. metaphor. He thinks he's like, it's going to go where it can burn and it's going to keep going where it can burn. And, and I, you're right. I think the kind of furious thinking it, it will take to, I mean, the fact that we don't know, this is what blows me away. I, I mean, I think this is right. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm reading stuff just like you are. It strikes me that we don't know the contaminating possibilities of asymptomatic carriers. Right. That's the key. Right. That's the key. So, so the fact that we don't know that means we know nothing. Because a lot of these young guys who think they're so cool and they're used to being immune and they've walked through high school and college that way. And they're, now they're hanging out at beaches and pubs and they're at, uh, they may well be carrying it, and they we don't know to what extent they can convey it. So right, right. So that, that to me, if we don't know that, yeah. the fact that we don't know that, and the fact that we have inadequate testing, those two things. I mean, this is really scary, right? I mean, the, these two things are giant, it's, huge, g- gaping holes in, in in anything we know about this. Well, phenomenon. it's more complicated even than that. Um, there's a, um, a an epidemiologist, anthropologist named Jim Trossel. Who's a he's on st- uh, faculty at Trinity College in Hartford, and what he talks about is it's kind of a mistake to think of this as a, as a pandemic. It's really a series of small, discrete epidemics. Each one has its own etiology, and so New York City was a disaster because of uh, the vertical structure of inhabitants. Chelsea in Boston was a f- was a disaster because of poverty. Uh, rural America was largely immune, but it's going to catch up. And so the variances are so multiple, and um, we don't know about, and in some cases, the strains have changed, too. They've mutated to some extent. So there's a lot of study that needs to be done to track all this stuff, and that's that's hard work. It's a, it's a lot of detailed study that's going to be required. Now, having said that, the preliminary indicators of the protest movement is that because they're outside, because they are, um, a lot of the people are wearing masks, um, and mainly because it's outside, the uh, aerosolization and the, the risk of infection is much less than uh, in more densely packed areas. So um, now you add tear gas to the equation, it gets complicated because now you're, you're, you know, you're antagonizing the respiratory process. So um, it looks to me from what I've seen that so far the mask protests have been relatively but we'll you know again the other thing is it takes 10 days for the right so we'll see so that the start of memorial day we'll see so we'll but, see like yeah i mean we're kind of 
But we're seeing in Florida, the evidence from Florida and Texas, the states that opened and and Arizona, the states that opened up early are seeing a big rise right now. Yeah, because Florida, Florida's previous peak was like 2100, right? Cases in a day. And now they're doing the past two days that I saw recorded. They did over 3000. That's right. I think they hit 4000 yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the disasters. Now, now in Florida, what you've got, you've got a lot of elderly people, and you've got an incredible number of poor people, and uh, that's not a good combination. There's a, and and so the, st- the correlation between access to healthcare, diet, exercise, um, and respiratory and diabetes, all of those are contributing factors. So, uh, Florida is probably uh, ready to go. Now, that does not bode well for the plans of the, uh, as I pointed out, of the National Basketball Association to sequester in. Uh, Disney World with 22 teams playing out a schedule that in, would include, you know, qualifying for the playoffs and then the championships. Right? It's, it's, it's probably not going to happen now uh, just because of the risk and the concentration there and, you know, and traveling in and, you know, people who are 20, 25, 30, who have a million dollars in pocket money are not normally the most disciplined folks to uh, keep um, from getting into trouble. So what's going to happen in this country with no NFL in September? Um, well, uh, what's interesting is if the NFL does come back, which I, it's very hard to imagine, uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, activism on the part of athletes because they understand their social responsibility. So uh, you're going to see a lot of kneeling. You're going to see a lot of mobilization of racial um, protest, uh, and it's going to be joined by uh, white athletes as well. So that would be interesting to watch. I don't think it's going to happen. I just don't think that between the structure of the game and the importance of a crowd to the financial and to the sort of um, ecology of how the game played. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, it's hard to imagine a studio. We ought to go back and, and watch that film Rollerball, by the way, um, uh, because that's a TV made for TV kind of combat um, it's a mix of martial arts and uh, e-games, e-sports and uh, pure militarization. That might be the model for the future that works in a studio, but um, <laughs> I, I just don't see it. I just think there are going to be too many times when 20 people test positive on a team. And you think that will just be the private sector? It's not as though, I mean, right now, this administration is going to be like, okay, get them out there, put the cleats on. You think it's going to be dictated by private sector concerns and stuff? They're just not going to take the risks. The athletes don't need to sacrifice themselves. Um, they've made enough money. Not that they've made enough money, but I mean, I think, uh, you know, because the athletes, football, your average career is three years. So they want to play, but they're not, they're not crazy. Uh, football players are actually, on average, extremely high IQ. They're really smart people. They're not going to go out there, that, not all of them anyway, uh, and put their lives on the line. It's not worth it. Um, I think they're going to understand that they're just, it's, you're better off waiting. You, you wait a year. Taking a year off is not a bad thing. That's so what, what would you write about? for the? Let's say you're not, you don't have sports to write about for a year. Are you, are you going to keep... Well, although you kind of wrote, again, indirectly about di- today and Corona. I mean, will you, you already said you're working on something on democracy and citizenship. I mean, are you kind of getting in a frame of mind to, to exercise your creative energies in, in different outlets? Well, uh, only because that's what I've always done. Uh, uh, I've, 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 I've already written a book about U.S. national security, um, and I published many, many academic papers on that stuff. I lectured, I taught for years, so it's not... Um, not a big adjustment, if you will. Um, that's kind of how I operate. So, um, you know, I think the more interesting issue is um, 
there's a lot to be said about getting cities and communities and schools ready for sports. And so that's what we're going to have to be writing about. Uh, ESPN has been doing it all the time. ESPN has been covering extensively the debates in Major League Baseball, for example. The guys who have used to shit writing about the draft and about, um, uh, you know, whether relief pitchers should be able to just be changed out after one player and, you know, all these rule changes that are being implemented, they're now writing about the debate and the, uh, between Manfred and the players union over whether there's going to be a season or not. So we all have to make that adjustment. That's, you know, the, I, I get this all the time on my Twitter, one of my Twitter feeds. I have two of them. One is sports, one is politics. I, I can't cross over because the audience gets pissed off. <laughs> I get this all the time. Why don't you just Unless you're on sports radio, then you can cross it over. Yeah, well, we're on sports radio right now. The, uh, <laughs> but the notion that, uh, well, you know, we want to keep politics out of sports. Forget it. It's over. You can't yeah, 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 isolate yeah, yeah. that. Um, if you want to keep sports out of uh, – my, my mantra here is uh, if you want to keep sports – if you want to keep politics out of sports, first of all, stop playing the anthem. The anthem, yeah, 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 yeah. The anthem, which only I think started in the fifties, I may be wrong. Um, um, just think about the symbolism of why a game has to start with pledging, not pledging, with the singing, um, some kind of um, an ode to uh, the glorious revolution, and um, it's such a strange way of mobilizing sentiments and. And, and no, way, I think I think the same way. thing is true with the religion. I, I think that 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 yeah. the politicization of it with that kind of stuff it just kills it. It kills the transcendence. It kills any chance to unplug from the the harsh, sometimes tribalistic dialogue, so that you can kind of reengage it in a healthier way. It, it, it's religion just become another theater for the tribalistic stuff. When it used to be, you could kind of you know at least get a little bit of a respite from it and some transcendence. Yeah. Same thing with sports, right? you get these transcendent moments where the human conditions on display in these beautiful ways. And you can kind of decompress a little bit and, and think about something bigger than the tribal partisan. But then, then it just, I don't know, the tribal partisan political kind of caustic culture seems to ruin everything it touches. I know. And the worst example and the most con um, contrasting is the Olympic games, because in the Olympic games, you've got all these amazing athletes from all over the world and you end up with a medal count to see which country is the best. And it's just, it's so antithetical to, you know, the real issue is who can run the fastest 10 meter, 100 meter sprint. And, uh, you know, it would be so nice to just watch uh, the, the decathlon without watching the guy wrap himself up in a flag and make a big Right, right, right. God forbid they ever so see us, you know, a winner wrap themselves up in a, a flag of the United Nations. <laughs> they would be banned from their sport. And, and by the way, one of the interesting things lately it's fascinating to listen to interviews with um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. They were the two American runners in the 200-meter dash in, in, in Mexico City in 1968. Tommy Smith won. John Carlos finished third. And uh, they raised the fist uh, with the black, you know, the black um, power kind of move. And they were banished right away. They were ushered, stripped of their medals. Each of them had actually an interesting professional career in education and community leadership. And they're now... They're out there now making their voices known, and it's great to hear them. And it's sad because they were broken, or they tried to break them. And same thing with Kurt Flood in, in Major League Baseball, who broke the reserve clause and was banished from baseball because of it. Um, the people who are really the pioneers, and, we, and it's the exact same thing with the folks who put their careers on the line to testify for the House in the impeachment hearings. You know, John Bolton was, was just refused to put himself there, but his associates, Fiona Hill 
and uh, Colonel, uh, the, uh, the analyst, Vinman, both threatened, they put their careers on the line for the sake of truth, and they were vilified and basically thrown out of Washington. Bolton's trying to cash in on it now. That kind of gutlessness and, and what we need instead are people who are, who are willing and heroic, like John Carlos and Tommy Smith or Fiona Hill, to put their uh, careers and bodies on the line. And that's what we've learned with the Black Lives Matter now, that it's, that's what it's going to take. And when those people show their commitment and when they're joined by the rest of us, people notice and people change. And that's why sports are important. Sports are important because there's an objective level of, of achievement that we'd all recognize. And that qualifies you for a certain kind of stage presence that allows you to do some other things. And when someone does that well, whether it's a Muhammad Ali uh, or to some extent LeBron James uh, or Colin Kaepernick, boy, that's impressive. That, that takes real courage. Brad, I appreciate your perspective, your writing. And just uh, your life's work, and and uh, keep um, please uh, inserting your voice uh, into the conversation because I think it, it's a voice we so desperately need more of. And thanks for doing it, voicing your opinions, and spending some time talking with me. Well, about them. thanks for putting together uh, an occasion where um, lots of different people can talk about things on their mind and in their hearts. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.